Listen for the word of God from Luke chapter 19. While they were there listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, this is Jesus, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegate after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in this very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master said, answered, take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a harsh man. You uh, take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put the money in a deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? He then said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. The word of God. Please be seated. Are you sure about that? Thanks be to God. You came to church during spring break while everybody is snowboarding and in Santa Barbara and whatever, and then we read a story about a rich man, a nobleman, who seeks power and royalty and wealth, and then puts his servants to work while he's away. He comes back as king, and those, he rewards those who do as he says, and the one who does not, it ends in violence and in death. Thanks be to God. Happy spring break, everyone. What do we do with this parable? What do we do with this parable? One option for this parable, which has been done by many people, is to allegorize this parable. And when we allegorize it, we take one part and it stands for something else, and each person and part in the story represents something else. And so the traditional allegory of this parable goes that the nobleman, the rich man, is Jesus, because this nobleman goes into a distant country uh, to receive the kingdom or to take the kingdom. And of course, Jesus goes to heaven after his death and crucifixion to receive the kingdom. And so Jesus is this king, and he entrusts us as his followers with talents, with gift. 
and uh, we need to work this gift that is given. Because after all, it's a gift that's given to us out of grace. And so uh, the, the servants represent us and we take these gifts and uh, we do something. And to those who take the gifts that God gives them, God blesses them tenfold, fivefold. And then to the one who does not, God rejects them. And that represents the people who reject God and ultimately we see death and destruction come upon them. And so that's what often gets done with Luke's parable of the ten minas, which is this, this money. But the problem is, at least in my view, is we're doing theological gymnastics, I think, when we interpret this parable in that way, when we allegorize it. I don't think that that is a helpful solution. Then what many people do is moralize it. If allegorizing is not working, we can moralize it. And so, you know, the moral of the story is, and the moral of the story is stewardship, this very Christianese word. Stewardship, which means whatever God gives us, we need to be faithful with it and responsible with it. And God blesses us when we use what God has given us. So you can allegorize it, you can moralize it, and what complicates Luke's uh, parable here even more is that we have a very similar uh, parable in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, it is called um, the parable uh, of the ten talents. It is a similar parable, but it is not the same. In fact, many scholars think that perhaps these are two completely separate parables because of the major differences that exist. But we never preach on this one, Luke chapter 19, and we can probably see why. It ends in violent destruction. And when we allegorize it and moralize it and it gets complicated with Matthew, Matthew's story and Luke's story, how can we have a parable with a king who represents Jesus, who is harsh and mean and uh, destroys the people who don't follow his way? Well, we, we sort of jump through hoops to try and explain it. Getting to the meaning of this parable is not straightforward. And Pastor Chris, in the first sermon in the series called Simply Stories, the Gospel of Luke, she warned us that a parable is not an allegory and a parable is not uh, to be moralized. Parables are short, memorable stories from everyday life that provide social commentary on what is happening. And so parables in the Gospel, Pastor Chris said, always puts family, wealth, power, competition, and honor on display, and so parables are always social commentary. So, if we're not going to allegorize it, which I don't think we should, and if we're not going to moralize it, which is not the point of parables, and if we're not going to confuse Matthew's version with Luke's, what are we going to do with this parable? What is this social commentary that Jesus feels the need to make on their way to Jerusalem? So, I think Jesus is doing something different with his parable, and probably in most of the parables, than what we normally think. Rather than think of this as the parable of the ten minas, or the parable of the ten servants, I think Jesus uses this parable, and maybe we can call this parable the parable of the ruthless ruler, or the parable of the protesting citizens, or the parable of the whistleblower. Let's explore that a little more. We'll go through it verse by verse. Verse 11 says, while they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. 
This parable comes at the end of Luke's travel narrative. Scholars calls it the travel narrative. And the, we're in chapter 19. The travel narrative actually starts all the way back in Luke chapter 9. And in Luke chapter 9, 51, it says, Jesus resolutely turned his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus resolutely turns his face towards Jerusalem. And from this point forward, Luke is taking Jesus to the path of the cross. And they are now in this parable right next to Jerusalem, near Jerusalem. And for this reason, Jesus tells this parable because the followers and the disciples thought that Jesus was going to bring the kingdom of God at once, now. And they expected a very specific kingdom that Jesus was going to bring, a kingdom that would overthrow violently the current rulers of the world, the Roman Empire. It's important to remember, up until this point in this travel narrative, as Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem, Jesus time and time again reminds the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to face rejection, suffering, and death. And so Jesus says, or Luke says, Jesus tells this parable in order to be a corrective for their understandings of what is going on. Verse 12, the story continues. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. It's, to me, this seems a little bit puzzling. It's like uh, this nobleman is, has a shopping trip where he goes to REI and comes back with all the loot. This man goes off to a distant country to take for himself a kingdom. You, you just get to do that? I find this strange. But you see, this man is, is, is an elite. He's an elitist, he's a nobleman born into riches. And so he has status, he has wealth, he has power. And he journeys to procure, procure the royal power for himself. Literally it says, he goes to get himself a kingdom. How awesome is that? And we need to remember the context here. As Jesus is telling the story, he's making social commentary. For Luke's hearers, they will be reminded they, they are, every day they're reminded that they're living under the power of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire controlled all the regions, in this case Judea and Samaria, through local rulers. And these local rulers were kings who were then to, 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 to rule the local people and carry out Roman authority on behalf of Caesar. And so these local rulers or local kings, they were doing Rome's resource extraction, taxes, and their political will. And they did it through violence. And Jesus' hearers will know of Herod the Great, who we meet in Luke chapter 2. And Herod the Great uh, had lived prior to, uh, to this time and then Two, he had two sons, and his two sons, after his death, had uh, battled or fought against each other. They disputed who was going to be king. And so the one son, Herod, Herod Archelaus, sails from Judea and Samaria all the way to distant Rome to appear before Caesar, the Roman emperor, and there he pleaded his case before Caesar that I want to take a kingdom for me, and to make a long history lesson short, Caesar declared Herod Archelaus 
king of Judea and Samaria. And so when Jesus is telling this story on the way to Jerusalem, he is making social commentary. It's not an allegory, and it is certainly not a moralizing. Jesus looks at what's happening in the region and what's happening in the world, and he says, let me tell you a story about a king who went to a distant place to grab power for himself, Herod Archelaus. We find the word kingdom five times in these texts. And so Jesus is making social commentary about who is king and what kind of kingdom does this king have. The story continues. So the king called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. And as we understand the context now of Herod, we understand that this is so much more Then stewardship, it's more about wealth distribution. You see, this nobleman has personal servants who take care of his household affairs, administrative things, and this was normal. An elite person, a rich person, had many, many different slaves that did many things, and some of them would work their way up because they were loyal and did their job well, higher up into the hierarchy of the household, and their job was to maintain and to grow the power and status and wealth of their master. And so the master gained power and more money through their work, and as they work, they get rewarded, and they work, move higher up in the ladder in the household, based on how their performance is. And so we see this master gives his servants uh, 10 minas. This is actually not a lot of uh, money. it, it, It amounts to about three months' worth of work for 10 servants. And of course, the servants know the ways and the means in which the master practices his wealth accumulation. And as we now hear the story in maybe a different way, we know that there is people who are not happy with the way he does it, and he accumulates wealth through force and oppression. And so this is social commentary Jesus is making about wealth distribution and an economic system that is oppressive. The story continues, but the the nobleman's subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him as he's on his way to the distant country to get a kingdom. We don't want this man to be our king. And so we find an unexpected set of actors enter the scene, a group of citizens that are not happy with the nobleman. And they are contrasted to the servants who... The servants are loyal and does what the master asks. But these citizens have experienced the brutal reality of the abusive and exploitative power of this master, and they despise him. And so they are fearful that if he becomes king, he now has more authority uh, and that their hardship under him will not only continue but increase. And so they send a delegation. And we know, as they're listening to Jesus tell the story, in their minds they have their own history of Herod Archelaus who went to Caesar and said, I want to be king, and he became king. And when there was a Jewish rebellion in Galilee, he slaughtered, historian Josephus says, about 3,000 Jews. So a delegation goes after the noblemen to try and uh, intercept and talk to Rome and say, ah, we need to subvert this. We do not want this man to be king. 
And the people bring their case before whoever it is, and they argue that, look, if this man becomes uh, king, there's going to be animosity between the local people and between uh, him and the rulers that he's put in charge. And this will cause problems for the empire. It's all recorded in Jewish Wars by Josephus. The story goes on. He was made king, however, as it happens with kings, despite the protests. He was made king and returned home. Then he sent for servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they'd gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned more. Well done, my good servant, because you have been trustworthy in this small manner. Take charge of ten cities. So, as I said, this delegation was ex- uh, unsuccessful. They do not want this man to be king, but he's king. They do not get to choose. And so he returns as king and now needs to set up an administration that is going to rule over Judea and Samaria, It's going to rule over his area. And so he sets up an administration with whom you put the people in charge who are loyal to you, that do what you ask them to do. And so he comes back to the servants and they report what they had done. The first servant had increased the little bit of wealth that he was given tenfold. And possibly we know now from knowing how the citizens reacted to the rule of this nobleman that his servants probably accumulated wealth in a similar way, way, probably through force. And so the first servant comes back and ten times more and the king, the, the nobleman now king, rewards his loyalty and trust by putting him in charge of ten cities in the government. How cool is that? You can go and shop for a kingdom, and if you do well, you can go and be in charge of ten cities. Story continues. The second servant came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His, answer, uh, his, his master answered him, You take charge of five cities. And so we see the second servant makes five-fold profit, and he is put in charge of five cities. And so we see each servant gains a more powerful position, not only in the household, but now in the rule of the area. But their dependency as servants has also been reinforced. See, the servants are never allowed to forget who the source of their wealth is. They're eternally indebted to the ruthless master because if they don't, we'll see what happens next. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. All of a sudden, Luke shifts the story from Ten servants to one. There is not even mention of the other seven servants. There's the the one servant who who tenfold multiplied the wealth. There's the second servant who multiplied wealth five times. We don't know what the other, the others aren't mentioned. And in all likelihood, the other uh, seven servants simply did what the first two did, and that is be loyal to their master and help continue for him to gain financial uh, financial gains. Um, and so now it focuses on this one servant who wrapped the, the money in a cloth and kept it safe. 
And so now as we understand the social commentary that Jesus is making on this parable and on what's happening in the world and as he's on his way to Jerusalem, maybe we can look at this third servant in a very different way. This third servant kept the the one coin because he did not want his master to profit from his money-making schemes at other people's expense. Perhaps that is how we can read this parable. He took the master's money out of circulation completely so it could not be used for oppressive and exploitative means. The other servants gave no explanation for their cooperation. The parable simply says, that's what they did. But for this third servant, he stands in contrast with the others because he gives an account for why he does what he does. I acted because. And his claims come from experience. He is afraid of his master. And this is fear not based on surmising, but the fact that this ruthless ruler had treated the citizens in an exploitative way. He was unjust in his investment schemes and exploits. And in fact, the servant then says to his master, I took this out because I'm afraid of you because you take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. If we allegorize and moralize and make this into the nobleman into Jesus, we get in all kinds of problems. You took out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. The the servant says, the master benefits from their labor and the servant now exposes this nobleman's oppressive use to gain power and wealth. And so this third servant enters the scene and he chooses a path of nonconformity to the economic and political system of the time. See, the hero of this parable is not the king or the faithful, quote-unquote, servants. The hero of this parable and this reading is, is the third servant because he took the money out of circulation and protested the abuse that is happening around him. And he says, we cannot use this money to dispossess the poor. And so, today we would call this servant a whistleblower. And this whistleblower servant is no fool. He realizes that he will pay a price for his actions. But he decides to accept the cost rather than continue with this abusive structure. And the story continues. The master replied to him, Now, king, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Then why didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected with interest? (laughs) He calls the other slaves good. He calls this slave wicked. And he denounces him. He shames him. He vilifies him for not going along with the king's economic ways. He's judged because he's not part of the status quo of the elite interests. And note, the king admits the servant's characterization of him, of harsh, harsh and just. He says, yeah, you know, you don't put, uh, yeah, you say I don't put it in. So why did you not put it in the bank to make more money? And this social commentary Jesus makes reveals the relentless pursuit of wealth and economic profit at the expense of others. If you knew I was harsh, why didn't you just put it in the bank so I can get more money? 
The story continues. Then the king said to those standing by him, take this mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10. Sir, they said, he already has 10. Master replied to them, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to become king over them, bring them here and kill them right in front of me. This closing scene is brutal. It, it demonstrates the brutality of elite, this elite man turned king and the nature of his kingdom. Nonconformity is punished with death. He takes the money and gives it to the servant who displayed uh, great loyalty and business acumen in order to make more, to try and make the point. The rich will get richer. The poor who don't stand in line or fall in line will get poorer. And so this parable uh, shows that, the, that this, is, this is not about equal and even distribution. This is a system that is corrupt and ruinous. The rich become richer, the poor becomes poorer, is what Jesus seems to say. There's the 1% and the 99%. There's, maybe to be more accurately, the 80% in the United States, and there's the 20% upper middle class. Those who oppose injustice will have loss and hardship, and in many cases, their lives taken from them. And then we see the king's final instruction in this parable. Violent execution for those who oppose him. The end. Thanks be to God. Let's just say a little bit more, then we'll be done. Luke has Jesus tell this parable in a very specific place, on his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus, literally, in the next verse, goes to Jerusalem. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to be crowned king. At least this is what the disciples and the followers of, uh, of Jesus thought was going to happen. Because remember, it says Jesus told this parable because they thought the kingdom of God would appear at once. That is why Jesus tells this parable because of their misconception of what God's kingdom is like and because of their misconception of what's going to happen in Jerusalem, the very next thing. And we see in this social commentary, Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, I am like the third servant. I am the whistleblower. This parable is not so much about stewardship and using God's gifts for the good. No, Jesus is interested in exposing a king and a kingdom marked by hierarchical power, exploitation, oppression, and violence. Jesus proclaims a different kind of kingdom and has done so since Luke chapter 9. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not a kingdom of status quo, but a kingdom of protest. My kingdom is not a kingdom of power, but of vulnerability. My kingdom is not a kingdom of coercion, but of love. My kingdom is not a kingdom of judgment, but of mercy. My kingdom is not a kingdom of violence, but a kingdom of peace. The crowd following Jesus and his disciples expect this violent overthrow of the empire. And Jesus says, I have a different way. 
through the series of events that Luke strings together as we get through the story. We see that he wants to show that it's a kingdom of love, and we see the disciples misunderstand it. In your worship guide, you will see, I put a paragraph there about this, but you can see on the screens there, the context for this parable. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus says he sides with the outcast and the weak. He, he sides with the small because uh, they brought the children to Jesus, and Jesus says, no, bring the children unto me, who usually did not have uh, an audience with, with religious leaders. And Jesus sides with the weak. The blind men gets healed, who people think because of their sin is why he is blind, but no, Jesus sides with them. Jesus sides with the outcast, a tax collector, who is a sinner, and Jesus dines with him and calls with him. The context is Jesus saying, no, my kingdom is different. My kingdom belongs to the least of these. And then Jesus challenges in Luke as he goes towards Jerusalem. He challenges those with social status. In chapter 18, we see Jesus talks to the Pharisees, and then we we see that he challenges those with economic power, the rich, young, the rich ruler, and Jesus challenges him to, to, to give away his wealth. And in all these instances, Jesus' disciples don't get it. They try and shoo the children away from Jesus. They uh, try to keep the blind men quiet who is saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy, and they like, shh, be quiet. The disciples don't get what Jesus is about. He goes to eat with Zacchaeus and they roll their eyes. And then Jesus asked the wealthy ruler to give it all the way, and they're like, hang on, that could have come to our pockets. So the context is really important here as we see this parable of the whistleblower. Luke puts together a story of disciples and people who don't understand who Jesus is all about, and Jesus tells a parable to correct that narrative. Right before the parable of the whistleblower, we have the story of Zacchaeus. And we see that Zacchaeus is a story of a rich, elitist tax collector who works for the imperial, imperial system, and he uh, is despised by all the people because of his work for the Roman government and taking the taxes. But yet Jesus embraces him, seeks him out, and as Zacchaeus understands there's a different wealth economy in, in Jesus' kingdom, Zacchaeus redistributes his wealth. The Bible says, Luke says, he, he gives half of his uh, possessions to the poor, and to those who he cheated, he gives four times more back. You see, the story of Zacchaeus before this parable is about Zacchaeus who is liberated as a slave of the political and economic system of the empire. It's not just Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a cool story like that. It has political power. When Jesus subverts the powers that be and says, Zacchaeus, you no longer work for the empire that oppresses and has injustice and just makes more and more money. Now go and give to the poor and make, wrong, uh, make right what you did wrong. And so that's the context of this parable. That's what happens. And then Jesus says, let me tell you a story about a king who wanted to have power and a servant who opposed him. And then right after this, we see Jesus enters. In the very next verse at the end of this parable is Jesus entered Jerusalem. It says he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. And he, he's going to Jerusalem to the place where the dynamics of power is revealed that is played out in this parable. We often call this the triumphal entry. But it is anything but that. Many scholars have said we should probably call this the street theater entrance. Because Jesus was doing street theater. We know that there were two processions that happened over Passover weekend. 
During times of religious festivals, the Roman Empire would send their legions and their uh, cavalry and their soldiers with chariots and swords and spears to march in so that the people knew who was in charge. And so they came on one side into Jerusalem over Passover to show their might. How does Rome rule? We bring peace. Pax Romano. We bring peace, the peace of Rome. And what is the peace of Rome? If you're out of line, you go on a cross. And so Jesus has his street theater by coming in on the other side of Jerusalem on a donkey. And so we see a clash of empires happening right after this parable where we see the empire of Rome that rules by might and force and violence, and we see Jesus coming in humility and mercy and nonviolence. That is the context of this parable. And then rather than violently overthrow the empire like Jesus' disciples want him to do, Jesus himself would, would experience the violence and brutality of a state-sanctioned execution. And through that show the more excellent way. Jesus tells parables because parables help us to see things in a new way. Not allegorize or moralize, but to see things in a new way through social commentary. Parables expose the realities that are often hidden from view or ignored because they're so obvious and we don't know what to do with them. Makes me think of uh, the street artist, Banksy. Some of you are probably familiar with Banksy. Came to prominence, I think, the late 90s, 90s or the early 2000s. As an artist, a street artist from, uh, from England, from the UK. Uh, and he sort of uh, started with, with different kinds of styles, but very quickly he had this stencil style of art. Um, that you can maybe see a little better in this picture to the right, you see the stencil, because he went to a stencil uh, street art, or graffiti, <laughs> um, because he needed to quickly do it so the police would not find him. So he figured out, rather than work nicely on this, you create the stencil before and put it up, and then you can do it quickly. And Banksy has this uh, tendency to, to make social commentary that uh, causes us to, to stop and to reflect and look at these images and go, wow. Now, this is not such a profound one, although it is if you see what happens next. He says, uh, this is a, on a building in the UK, uh, this will look nice when it's framed. And then we find Banksy, who is an artist who wants everybody to have access to it, and he's against elitism and, and paintings being sold. He doesn't sell his paintings uh, in galleries, but other people take his paintings and then sell them for millions of dollars. And so the girl with the balloon is an example. Just recently, I think at the end of 2018, this was in the news, because Banksy's, uh, this painting uh, was put on auction. And at the auction, he himself provided the um, frame for this piece of art, and he built in, uh, what do you call the thing? Zip. Yes, you know the story. He built in a shredder, and so they were, they were uh, auctioning on this, and eventually, I think it was 850,000 uh, pounds, so $1.2 million or so that this painting, uh, this work of art of his that, uh, that he provided the frame for, and uh, the shredder went and it shredded the thing. Because he's protesting the ridiculousness of these rich elite people who can spend millions of dollars on things like this but not care for the world. 
And uh, in fact, he makes commentary that now they take his act of protest, it was supposed to go all the way down, it misfunctioned. And he talks about the, the, the irony that the rich now have put this up into a display and made a new uh, display of it. And now it's on display because it's this incredible work of art. Oh, the irony. Banksy protests and, and he, he makes social commentary. <laughs> this, this one is called Devolved uh, Parliament. <laughs> And you may not see it quite closely, but it's a bunch of apes. And he actually did this 10 years ago in the UK to protest the parliament then. And it got released, was it yesterday, on what was supposed to be Brexit Day, um, which will probably happen when the second coming happens. Um, but it was they brought it back into his hometown, Bristol, uh, their museum, in order to celebrate 10 years of this and how appropriate that devolved parliament. Uh, and so he's making social commentary again about what's happening in his hometown. He makes social commentary about uh, technology and media. And here you have the famous Monet painting, and you see the shopping carts right in front of it. If you zoom in, you can get sort of the sense of this. When you stand in front of this uh, piece of art that he's done, you think about it. And he's protesting. What have we done to this world? He has landscapes like this. He doesn't only do street art. He sometimes creates oil paintings. And you have this beautiful landscape. And then you have CCTV cameras right in the middle of the lake. In fact, he, in New York, made this one, One Nation Under CCTV. And you see the CCTV on the right. This came out after uh, the report on uh, the government listening in on conversations. Banksy, Banksy has a way of, of providing social commentary. This is in a strip club outside uh, New York, uh, in Boston. And uh, he called this love, not lust. Makes us think about relationships and, and, and how the world is uh, obsessed with sexuality in a negative way. Uh, this one is called media. He just called it media. You can't see it very clearly, but you have a reporter on the back left holding back uh, the emergency rescue people so that the media can take their picture of a child after a bombing. He calls this one mobile relationships. And the social commentary is not only politically, but it's also personally, right? And how right is he about this? Sometimes just simple messages uh, stenciled onto buildings. Sorry, the lifestyle you ordered is currently out of stock. This was after the iPhone was out, uh, outsold in one day and people couldn't get access. Social commentary again. This one is called Commercial Jesus. If you go in closer, you will see the Christmas gifts hanging on Jesus' arms. And traditionally, you would have a cross there, but it says, sale ends today, and you have women worshiping in front of the sign. Social commentary in fact, he went to uh, the West Bank um, and he opened up a shop called Walmart. <laughs> this is so uh, in character with Banksy. He opened a shop called Walmart because this is by the West Bank wall. And we know all the politics that's happening there for many, 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 many uh, um, decades. And he went there and he opened up and he's teaching people how to, to uh, do wall art. <laughs> you can come in there and learn how to do stencil art, buy supplies, so that you can go protest on the wall. His more famous um, 
artwork. This is uh, in West Bank at Bethlehem. He, uh, he created, I think, nine or ten pieces to protest what is happening there. And this one is called Girl Frisks Soldier. Just let that sink in. Changes your perception, doesn't it? Maybe one of his most famous one is called, um, different names, but Flower Thrower. This is on a big gas station next to the West Bank Wall. Throw flowers, not grenades. And we will look at what Bansky does. He is a third servant who protests what's happening in our world. It says there's a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom of love, not a kingdom of violence. So what is this new way of seeing this parable that Jesus tells? It's about power is not something to be grasped for but there's power in love and humility. And so rather than moralize about the story, maybe this parable confronts us with a number of questions that I leave you with. Jesus seems to be asking in this parable, what is power? Who wields power? How does power operate? Whose interests does power serve? Who suffers from the way power is structured? How does power get challenged? How do we live in a world of concentrated power? So Jesus told a parable of the suffering servant.